Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning. It's a beautiful morning this morning. Praise the Lord. Just a gorgeous feeling outside. Still praying for some rain, though. I don't know about y'all, but I'm praying for rain. So, praying for rain. Well, this morning, uh, we are in John 17. Y'all remember, for those of you who were here last week, we finished up uh, chapter 16. And so today, we're going to look at the first five verses of John 17. So uh, today's lesson, John 17, verses uh, 1 through 5. Let me read those for us together. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Uh, Father, as we open your word this morning, Father, we ask that you will uh, use your word. Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit will be here this morning and be our teacher. Father, we uh, thank you for your word. It is living and breathing and active. And Father, we ask that you use it for its intended purposes today. And pray that you will change us um, because we were here today and heard your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> So Dr. Sproul titled this uh, lesson, The Glory of Christ. And that by way of, before he got into the meat of this, uh, he tells of a time in 1969 when he was headed home from uh, teaching. He was teaching in a seminary in Philadelphia, and it was a night class. And so he was, he was headed home, at, done teaching at night. And uh, during the day or during the evening, a snowstorm had come into the city. So obviously it was in the wintertime. It had uh, covered the city, and so it's just you had a quiet city with probably street lights and snow-covered city. And as as he was leaving, uh, he noticed uh, there was another man also headed out on foot. He was going to be walking home, and this guy was also on foot. And he said, I, I'd seen him before. He looked familiar. I'd, I'd seen him around campus sometimes, you know, and but but he didn't know who he was. And so he said, well, hey, I'm out here in the middle of this. He's out here in the middle of this. Let's, I'll introduce myself and, and uh, ask him his name. And so the man answered, and I, if I don't pronounce his name right, I apologize. Uh, he answered, my name is Henry Barraclough. Does that name sound familiar to anybody? That didn't sound f- familiar to me. He says, um, so Henry Barraclough, he says uh, he had retired from the seminary. Obviously, before probably Dr. Sproul was there, but he retired. But he was spending his retirement volunteering at the seminary. He was been volunteering his time in the accounting office and helping out while enjoying his retirement. He, he said when he said his name, he said a light bulb went off in my brain. He said, Henry Baraclaw. He says, not the Henry Baraclaw. He says, are you the man who wrote the famous hymn, The Ivory Palaces? May I heard that hymn before? Ivory Palaces? Okay. Um, I haven't heard this hymn. It's not in our hymn book. It's not in our Trinity hymn book or the it's other an one. Old, old yes. Okay. It, it's an old Presbyterian hymn, I think. Yes. Okay. So, uh, 
So, so, so Dr. Spur recognized the name. Are you the same man who wrote the hymn? This is one of my favorites. And, it, and it, he said, yes, that, that, that's who I am. I wrote that hymn. And says, uh, Dr. Dr. Spruill said that the, his, the, this is one of his favorites. And the refrain goes like this, because I wasn't familiar with it. The refrain is, out of the ivory palaces into a world of woe. Only his great eternal love made my Savior go. Um, indeed, again, this is the same man who wrote uh, the hymn. And then he said, then he told, he shared with him is the, the inspiration for the hymn, what made him write the hymn, or what made him want to write the hymn. And so um, uh, Mr. Bearclaw said he was attending a series of Lenten lectures uh, at a church in downtown Philly. And he heard on this particular occasion the minister preached from Philippians 2. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I will read those verses. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He said he... As he listened to the sermon, this is, uh, uh, this is Mr. Henry. He says he was overwhelmed. As he, listened, he was overwhelmed by a sense of the sacrifice at which the son had accepted. He was overwhelmed. What, what the son had done. He says he, he, the son, the, the, Jesus our Lord, he, he, he set aside his eternal glory. The glory that he had shared with the Father and with the Spirit within the Trinity, right? And made himself of absolutely no reputation. He took on the form of a man on human flesh, the second person of the Godhead, took on human flesh and was obedient even to death at the hands of sinners. He, as we know, he did not empty him. He didn't stop being God, right? He did not empty himself of any of his uh, divine attributes, but he did set aside his glory, didn't he? He set aside his glory for a season. And so as we look at uh, our study here in John, it's brought us to chapter 17. Now chapter 17 is what we would call, or what we've known it as, the, contains the high priestly prayer of Jesus. It is, it is in this prayer, if you've studied it before, you know that it's kind of got three um, uh, parts to it. Uh, the first part, Jesus prays for himself. Right? The second part, uh, Jesus prays for his disciples. And the third part, he prays for his church. He prays for us, doesn't he? And the third part, of this prayer. You know, it's, uh, it's really, it's a blessing, right, that we get to uh, listen in on this prayer of Jesus because, you know, you really get to know someone when you hear them pray, don't you? You really get to know someone when you hear them pray because how they pray 
says a lot about them and what they believe about the Lord. And here we get to hear the Lord himself pray, praying to his Father. So it's a wonderful opportunity we have to look at how Jesus prayed and what he prays about. And in today's passage, we see that Jesus prays again for himself. We're going to cover that in the first five verses. And he is focused on the joy that is set before him. Uh, he, has, he asks uh, the Father to glorify him, which, uh, which we, we kind of talked about in the, the introduction, right? This hymn, this, this glory, the glory which I had with you before the world was. He, he's praying about that, right? We have that in verse 5. So his, his mission in this, as the hymn writer, as, as, as Barakloff said, this, this world of woe, okay, that he left and came into, right? This world of woe, his mission here was almost complete, right here at the end. And he is looking forward to returning to those ivory palaces, right? The ivory palaces from whence he came. And so uh, Jesus begins this prayer with these, these words, these decisive words, right? Uh, verse 1, the first half of verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Again, for those of us who have been in this study, and John, we've heard several times Jesus say, my hour has not come yet. The hour has not come. Well, now he is praying to his Father, the hour has come. It is, it is here and it's upon us. The hour of his humiliation is about to happen and the hour of his exaltation, right? And it's also about to happen because that glory that glory that, would, that, that, that he is asking his father to return, that glory is going to come through shame, which is, sounds contrary, right? It doesn't sound right, right? You mean you're going to have glory through shame, but we know that's exactly what's about to happen. His glory would return and it would come through his own shame. And so here in the upper room, Jesus is facing, he's staring, he knows what's about to happen. He knows we're here. This is the time. This we're ours, right? Uh, he's staring at the cross. Okay, he not literally, but figuratively, he knows it's it's coming. He knows what's about to happen. It's it's right in front of him. For years, it's been kind of uh, you know it's it's been it's been in the future, but now it's here. This this moment, okay, this this moment that has been planned by the Trinity from all eternity, right? It's always been the plan. Uh, this this plan of redemption, what was going to happen? Um, it's before before time even began. This was planned, and now it's here. And the time is here. His hour has come. And so, facing this hour, Jesus spends time talking with his Father. He needs time to talk with his Father. And so we see him ask this in um, the second part of verse one. He said, Father, the hour has come. He says, glorify your son, that your son also may glorify you. Dr. Sproul said, you know, when, when you and I, okay, humans, fallen humans, men and women, when we seek glory for ourselves, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. When we seek glory for ourselves, we do so at the expense of the glory of God. But when Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him, it was not at the expense of the Father, right? Because the glorification of the Son is the glorification of the Father. They are connected in their glory, right? 
So to glorify one is to glorify the other. So it is not robbery. He's not trying to take anything from the Father. It's you and I were asking for our own glory. We're robbing. We're, we don't deserve it, right? But, but, but to glorify the Son is also to glorify the Father. Paul understands this uh, when he says over in Philippians 2.11, he says he declares that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those words, to the glory of God the Father. That's in, we already read uh, that, uh, those verses in the introduction. So when the Son is exalted, praise the Lord, the Father is also exalted. So this was, this was not... A, if you and I were to ask, you know, were to say this, you know, how could you? But when we look at who's, when this is a request from Jesus, this was not at all a selfish request. Okay, this was, this, there, was not, there was no selfishness in this. He had, um, when, he, when he made this request, he also, he has the completion of the mission in view. He knows it's about to be completed he knows that he must be lifted up on the cross. It is coming. That is how the atonement will be made. And so he prayed, Father, glorify me in doing that to glorify yourself. Okay, so that's, that's um, where Jesus is coming from here. And he, so he goes on. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, As you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life, to as many as you have given him. Now, um, again, throughout our study in John, uh, we have seen Jesus talk about those that the Father has given him. Okay, we've seen him talk about that uh, several times. Um, remember back in back in John six uh, when he talked about this uh, about the ones that the Father had given him. You remember what what was the reaction of the people? If you remember back, a lot of people left, right? A lot of people left his ministry when he, when he talked about this, this reality of those uh, that uh, the Father had given him. And because the, the statements, even in John 6 and the ones he makes throughout uh, John, the statements, that, and this one included, focus on the, on the Father's sovereign role in salvation. That's the focus of it, okay? That is the focus of what he's saying here as well he's, as he said uh, many times in our study of John. Now, we're going to look at this. We're going to spend a little time here, okay, talking about uh, this statement, kind of what, and we're going to unpack it a little bit. Um, because there are, there are several uh, rival theologies that uh, we would, uh, Dr. Spool used the word, that coexist in the Christian world today, okay? There are several rival theologies that coexist in the Christian uh, world today. One of these, of which we are familiar with, right, uh, is Reformed theology, right? We're all familiar with Reformed theology. Uh, most of us uh, hold very close to it, if not all of us, ascribe to Reformed theology. And it, and it holds to the teaching of the Protestant Reformers, right, of the 16th century when this kind of came out. And, and we know the players, we know, uh, the, the, we know the Calvin's role and others' role, but the theology, when we talk about Reformed theology, right, it can be summed up, and y'all know this, right, the five points of what we would call Calvinism, right? Y'all know them. And, it, and we use the, the acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P. Remember what, just by way of review, um, T, total depravity, right? U, unconditional election, 
L, limited atonement, I, irresistible grace, and P, perseverance of the saints. And those, those five points kind of sum up uh, Reformed theology. And today's world, okay, Reformed theology, when you look at that and look at those, those five points of Calvinism, Reformed theology is in the minority. Okay, it is in the minority uh, and the evangelical church today. This is not the majority view. This is the minority report. Okay, and it comes to um, the evangelical church today. When you look at, when you consider uh, what we understand as Reformed theology, we have on the other side, probably the most common view today is what we would call dispensationalism. So what is that? Well, there are many differences between dispensationalism and reformed theology but the one thing that a lot of folks who would say they ascribe to dispensationalism a lot of those folks would say that they're four-point Calvinists okay they would say they are four-point Calvinists any guesses on which one they like to leave out the the L the limited atonement Okay, they would they would say that we're four point Calvinists, and yes, they want to take away the ill. They want to leave out the ill. And to be completely honest, okay, we, we be honest with ourselves, um, the the doctrine of limited or what would some would call definite atonement, okay, it's another word, um, is controversial. No, no we're not uh, saying it's not. Okay, it is controversial. And that is probably, in Dr. Spruill's words, the reason why, and the reason why it is so controversial is because it's so widely misunderstood. Okay? We're going to spend some time talking about uh, these things. But uh, I also agree, and uh, Dr. Spruill said this, he says, I don't see how a person can hold to the other four points and not have the ill. Because when you, when you, and if, you, if you've looked at these points, if you've done a study... <laughs> They're all connected. They all build upon one another. Right? When you start with T, total depravity, what's, what's that, what does that mean? Man is totally depraved, right? Man cannot save himself. That's when you really want the simplest form, right? Total depravity. Man, after the fall, cannot save himself. He's totally depraved. There's nothing he can do. God has to act. He's dead. He's dead, right? He's dead. That's totally, total depravity. So in that situation... We have you, unconditional, God must act. God must elect those who will be saved, right? L, limited atonement. The atonement only applies to the elect, right? I, um, irresistible grace. Grace is offered. It, it's, it's irresistible. You want the elect are offered irresistible grace and God changes their will, right? And he makes them, um, he causes the dead people to become alive. Right, and then the P, the perseverance of the saints. What you can never lose your salvation. Right, that's the really basic of those five. Right, so those and they all build upon one another. So I again, I agree. I don't see how in the world you can take out the L. But we're going to talk a little bit about this. We're going to talk more about it. We're, we're going to keep going a little bit deeper here. Okay, so I agree with him. The so let's talk about the L. Okay, let's talk about it uh, a little because Jesus is talking about it here in his high priestly prayer, right? If you want to just, just simple, we, we've said it, uh, I'll, I'll say it again. 
The doctrine of limited atonement, or definite, you can say, says the atonement of Christ, the payment for sins, right? That's what we're talking about. Was limited in its scope and its aim to the elect only. Okay? In other words, Jesus, the limited atonement says, Jesus did not die for all of the sins of all the world, of everybody in the world. That's what it says. Okay, so it says the atonement that was accomplished on the cross, payment for sins, was limited in its aim and its scope to the elect only. Okay? So it, it, Jesus did not atone for the sins of everybody in the world. That's in its simplest form what limited atonement means. Now, there's two ways to look at the atonement. Okay, two ways. So one, and this is what um, the dispensationalists would, would lean towards, when it comes to the atonement, the plan of salvation was provisional. Okay, it was provisional. In other words, you could say it this way, that they, the Trinity had planned, right, that Jesus would come into the world, He would suffer, and He would die, Okay, for all who at some point would put their trust in him. Okay, it's that's what makes it provisional, right? It is it is provisional in that that God provided the atonement for all who would take advantage of it, all who would believe. It was potential, right? It was provisional. Now we can think about this if you if you what are the implications of this um, thought process, right? Of this way of looking at this. Well, we can say it this way. If, if Christ died potentially for everybody, then it is theoretically possible that the whole plan could be in vain. Because why? Every last person could reject Jesus. Right? That is theoretically possible. That every if it was potential, then the whole plan could be in vain. Every last person that's ever lived could reject Jesus and choose, therefore, to remain in their sins. Now that's the, uh, unfortunately, that's the prevailing view in the church today. Can I say something? Yes, sir. The fact is that if that were the case, nobody would accept the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be the illumination and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit to bring it about. Right. And so the provision would just destroy the whole plan of salvation. Yes. I, well, it would. Yes, sir. You had to handle it. It would be like back in the days of Noah. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, right? It would, it would be that world. It, it could be that world. Yes, it could be. It would be, is I think what, what um, Pastor Riley was saying. So, what that view we just described, okay, and, we're, and it is the prevailing view of the atonement, okay, of the evangelical church today. That is where most believers, and there are brothers and sisters in the Lord. I'm not saying they're not, okay. Let me, let me be very clear, okay. We have some dear brothers and sisters in the Lord who this is the way they view the atonement. Now, um, so it's, it's, it's whether, so kind of to sum this view up, whether salvation happens or doesn't happen, then is up to who? 
the individual. Right? We call Arminianism. Correct. You can also call it Arminianism. The way of looking at the atonement. The Arminian view. Now, number two. Right? The other way of looking at this. The Reformed view. The ones that if, if you're here today and you're not familiar with it, you will be familiar with it. I'm not saying you will agree with it when you hear it, but you will definitely understand where we're coming from. Okay? The Reformed view holds... That God has had a plan from all eternity and it was not provisional. Okay, it was not provisional. God has decreed before time began that he would save a certain, a definite number of people out of this fallen world. And people whom we know very often because it's in the word, what does the Bible call them? The elect. Right? The elect. The Bible uses that term regularly. So in order for that uh, plan uh, to work here, right? For this, so this is this, this view here. God sent his son into this world with a specific purpose, right? A very specific purpose to accomplish redemption for the elect only. Okay? And this... This work, this atonement of Christ, that is right now, as Jesus is praying to his Father, it's hours away, right, in, in the timeline. This work was accomplished absolutely perfectly without one drop of Jesus' blood being wasted. Now you think about that for a minute. Perfectly accomplished. Because Jesus shed his own blood, didn't he? But not one drop of his blood was wasted. The, the, the atonement that Christ made, and what, what helps us understand this, the atonement that he made on the cross, okay, in the, when we talk about limited atonement and reformed theology, we believe was the actual payment. It was done. When, when Jesus said, it is finished, what does he say? That atonement has been made. For who? For my people. All that the Father has given to me, the elect. It has been paid. Actual payment. Not potential. Right? He didn't go put uh, a deposit into a bank account and let people draw from it. No. Actual payment. There was a debt there. And what was the debt? Your sins and my sins if we're the elect. Right? It was there. And Jesus put, there was that debt sitting there in the category. And he put a credit in that category. It was exactly the same amount. And he paid for it. It was paid for. Done. It is finished. Praise God. Amen. That was whispered and that was mouthed in the back. Praise the Lord. It is finished. Anyone, anyone, or everyone, excuse me, whom the Father chose for salvation will be saved through the atonement of Christ. Everyone. And he will not miss one. Now, the implication. Okay, the implication of the non-reformed view, okay, is is that God doesn't know in advance who will be saved. That's the implication, right? The provisional atonement, right? So that that's we can say that. But that's what it implies. If if it's potential, then God doesn't know who's going to be saved, right? That's the non-reformed view. Now, for this reason. Theologians who hold to that view will say that God saves as many people as He can. 
They'll, they have to, they, they use these kind of things. Well, uh, Dr. Sproul asked this question, well, how many people can he save? Hmm. How, how many people does he have the power to save? It's a very good question, isn't it? If, if he's really God, then he can save all of them. Now, we cannot deny that the Bible speaks of Jesus dying for the world, right? We cannot deny that the Bible speaks of this. John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, who should ever believe should not perish but have eternal life, right? That's the prime example of, of where the Bible speaks about Jesus dying for the world. But there's also a counterbalancing perspective that we find throughout the New Testament. Also, it, it, when we look in, in John's Gospel, we're told what? That Jesus laid His life down, not for everyone, but for His sheep. Right? We're told that here in the Gospel of John. Here, here in John, speaks, uh, Jesus speaks about His sheep. What? How does He describe the sheep? It's those that the Father has given to me. Right? That is a specific people. And when you think about, the, when, when, when we say, in, in, and I think I actually heard this best described probably in a Bible study here with this man leading it some years ago. When we, because we, had, we used to have a lot of Baptists come to our men's Bible study. And we would talk about these kind of things in a good way, in a profitable way. We didn't come, come to blows on or anything, right? I don't think we did anyway. <laughs> but um, but when, when, when we see in John 3.16, we probably even talked about this, I'm sure, in our study. When, Jesus, when John says that, that Jesus laid his, gave his life for the whole world, what's he, what was the implication there? Because not everybody in the world, right? What, what was the, 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 the Jews thought what? That the faith was them. Now it goes to the whole world. It goes, different tribes, Yes, the whole world. Right? He's, when Jesus is thinking about sheep, right, his sheep, he's not just thinking... Yeah, Lord, praise the Lord, there are some Jews in there too, right? But he's thinking about Gentiles. He's thinking about us. He's thinking about non-Jews. When he says the whole world, I died for people all over this world. The wild branches. That are grafted in. So what was... So back to... Um, here. Well, in, in John 6, right? Let's go back to, to our study in John 6. We saw that Jesus said these words, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. That's verse 44 of John 6. So Jesus also said in that chapter that all the Father gives to me will come to me. That's verse 37. His, his point, okay, his point is all who the Father has decided will come to salvation will come to his Son. They will come and no one else. So we understand that your salvation, you understand it, your sal if you hold to this Reformed view of, of the atonement, your salvation, my salvation, I believe this, from start to absolutely finish rests entirely on the sovereign decree of God who decided in His grace, right, in His abundant grace to have mercy on you and on me, not because of anything that we did, Nothing that he saw in us, uh, but only one thing, right? The love of the Son. The love of the Son. The love that the Father had for the Son. 
I have decided. These are the people that will be yours. So what was... Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, when, when we were talking about the whole world um, point of view, I, I think about it this way. Christ's death was sufficient for the whole world, but it was not efficient but for the elect. Kind of, kind of goes with that question, right? If, if God... It, can, is he, can he save everybody? Is if is the would the atonement? If God had decided that's the way He was going to do it, is it sufficient for all? God's got the power to save everybody, right? But He didn't, he right? Could. I mean, it was sufficient, it, right? It, it could have saved everybody, but it was only efficient for the, the elect. elect. Well, and to me, the, the, the piece of the actual, it was an actual payment. See, when, it's, when, you, when we realized this was an actual, when the atonement was made on the cross, actual payment for actual sins, that's very specific, isn't it? That is not potential. Well, just anybody can come to this. No, it's specific for the elect, limited to the elect, the atonement. Now, this, this um, well, let me back up. So, what was God's purpose in the cross? Well, it was to ensure, right, the salvation of those whom He had given to the Son. This is this is why when you look at election, when we look at uh, the elect, the doctrine of election, we must always understand it biblically to biblically to be in Christ. Our election is in Christ. Okay, we have we can't separate those two things. Jesus made it clear a little later, we're going to get to that, right, in verse 9, when he prays for those whom the Father had given him. Clearly, in his high priestly prayer, he is not praying for everybody. He's praying for a specific group of people, the ones the Father has given. And this view, this view that we've been talking about, this reformed view of looking at the atonement runs uh, against the prevailing view in American Christianity. Well, you're in the minority. If you hold to this view of the atonement, you're in the minority. And, and so uh, most American Christians will say something like this. It's not fair that God doesn't include everyone in His plan. That's what they'll say, right? Well, suppose Jesus did make atonement for every sin that has ever been committed. Supposing He did do that. Would that also include the sin of unbelief? Yeah. So in, in that, the implication of that view, if you say that, that in, then they have to understand that, then that means someone can live their entire life and never make a profession of faith and be saved. They can never submit to Jesus Christ as their Lord and ask and, and acknowledge by faith that their sins are covered by Christ and they could be saved. Dr. Sproul said, here's where the rubber meets the road, right? If you ask me, this is Dr. Sproul, if you ask me, did Christ die for my sins? He'd say, oh, well, I don't know. He said, then I'll ask a follow-up question. He says, um, he says, whether you're a believer or not, if, if you reply yes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, back up. Did Christ die for my sins? Well, I'll say, I don't know. He would say, well, are you a believer? You say, yes. Well, he said, well, then 
then I say Christ died for your sins. If the answer is no, careful, right? Don't get too quick on your answer, right? If you answer no to the question, are you a believer? Then say, well, I still don't know if Christ died for your sins. Because you might become a believer tomorrow. Right? You might become a believer. That's exactly, we don't know who the elect are. Right? If, if, he says, he says, but this I do know. Okay, and this is, you know, Sproul has a great way. This I do know. He died only for those who put their trust in him. We can all agree with that, right? He died only for those who put their trust in him. And, and the bottom line question is this. Do you or do you not trust in Christ alone for salvation from the just punishment that is due to your sins? Now, we're, today, during our service, we're going to ask some people a question very similar to this, aren't we? We've taken membership vows, right? We're accepting new members in our church. We're going to ask a question almost exactly like that question that he just posed, right? Do you acknowledge yourself a sinner in the sight, justly dis- dis- uh, deserving his displeasure? And without, forgive me, I should, I, I didn't read that one ahead of time. You know how it goes, right? So we're about to ask this very same question. If you answer yes to that question, right? If you answer yes, that, that you trust in God alone for your salvation, then the answer is guess what? You can sleep good tonight. You can sleep well, right? Every sin that you have ever committed and ever will commit, praise the Lord, has been paid for. You can sleep well. It is, it is only that, and he added this, is only when we understand that we have done nothing, not one thing, to earn our way into heaven, that even the faith that we have, even that is a gift from God. That is all by grace alone that we can say what? Glory to God alone. Praise the Lord. Great things He has done. Not one thing we did to earn our way into salvation. There's not one thing we did to make ourselves the elect. Not one thing that we did. Even our faith is a gift. That's a lot there, right? It's a lot there. We got three more verses. And I got three minutes. <laughs> verses quickly verses 3 and 4 Jesus said and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent I have glorified you on the earth I have finished the work which you have given me to do it is very interesting that Jesus prayed this the night before his passion right the cross has not happened yet Yet he says he's finished the work. In other words, he's saying, Father, it's all over. I've come to the end of the road and I'm not going to quit now. I'm going to the cross. I will go to the cross. And then he raises this petition for himself. In verse 5, he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Why did he pray like that? Why did, why did he pray that? What simple answer is for the last 30 something years, right? His glory has been hidden. It's been veiled and it? it's been hidden from this world. He's, he's lived as an alien in this world, right? He's lived as an alien in this world. This, this, um, 
this atmosphere, I mean, it, it is a completely different environment than uh, what he has had before the world was. Right? Now, he, now he's in a world, a create, the world that he created, right? Through him. It was created by him and through him. He's in this world. He's living in this world as a man. He's been demeaned. He's been humiliated and it's about to get worse. The, the pollution of sin has surrounded him every day. And instead of trying to be like him, what does the world want? Do they want to kill him? In other words, Jesus could be saying this, I'm, I'm ready to come home. He's a, I think Dr. Ferguson said he's a homesick soul. I'm ready to come home. I'm ready to come back with my Father, that glory. I'm ready to return as, uh, to the ivory palaces from whence I came. As we started this introduction right that hymn. I'm ready to return. I'm ready to have this, this glory back which you and I had before the world was. You know, if we could, we don't have this in the Bible, but we can, uh, it was again, I got this from Dr. Ferguson's study on this, this um, section of the Scripture. As you consider Jesus, this petition to His Father, you can say this, the Father says, Son, I have, I have watched you every single day. I felt the pollution of the atmosphere in which you have gone to save these sinners, the ones that we have called, the ones we have decided. That's, that's why I sent you to exalt you and to give you, because of what you're doing, the name that is above every name. Right? The name that is above every name, that at your name, the name of Jesus, then every knee and tongue will confess that you are the Lord. Now we get to, we get to hear now this as we're listening to Jesus praying. He's, the Son is telling the Father what He wants more, most in the world. And what does He want? He wants to be back with His Father. That glory. He's here. He's got a job to do. He is, he's committed to doing it. And when He's hanging on the cross, when He's enduring the pain, the wrath of a just God, right? Because somebody had to pay. He did it. He's thinking about you and me and all of His elect. And the love for the Father. Right? Does that, does that make you love Him? Yeah. That makes me love Him too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time. <clears throat> Father, if uh, anything has been said this morning, Father, in error, Father, we ask that You take it away. Just remove it from our hearing, our memory. Father, but... Um, we ask that you use your word this morning to change us and make us more like Christ for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray that as we leave this time, we pray that we go into our worship. Father, be with our pastor as he leads us in worship. Father, we thank you for uh, what you will do today. We look forward to meeting you in the worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.